WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Whenever you're walking through the grocery or even in your kitchen, you can sometimes distinguish what you're smelling. For example, the smell of bananas or apples or oranges. However, scientists don't actually know what causes the smell of bananas. So today we're going to peel back the secrets to banana aroma biosynthesis with Philip Engelgau. Hey, Philip, thanks for joining us today. May you please tell us more about yourself and your research? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'd be happy to tell you more. So my work is on bananas and the chemicals that we smell and that bananas make in which we perceive as being banana-like. And so these compounds are really what drive the flavor of banana fruit, and they give it that banana-like smell. It's hard to describe as as anything else other than banana-like. So I study how bananas are able to produce this really kind of unique smell and what makes them special. Nice to meet you, Philip. When it comes to the bananas and just different fruit aromas, there's a lot of different artificial smells that exist out there. Are we able to actually recreate the same smell as the banana, or are we using a different mixture of chemicals to recreate a fake smell of banana when it comes to these either aromas in perfumes or in candy, for example? So when we taste candies that are flavored or marketed as banana, and they're flavored with artificial flavorings, the source of that chemical and that flavor is synthetic, and it's made in a lab. But these chemicals are very often the same exact ones that the fruits naturally make. Now, the difference is that often with candies, you want a very strong and pronounced flavor and thus aroma. And so oftentimes they'll pick just a single chemical or maybe a couple. Whereas when you eat a banana, it doesn't quite taste the same and it really tastes quite different. And that's because banana fruit their aroma is composed of about 20 different chemicals. A lot of them smell banana-like, others smell slightly fruity, and altogether you get that banana fruit smell. But when we make candies, we take out elements of that to make it almost more distinguishable. So you bite it and you're like, oh, I recognize this. This is fake banana, and I still like it, but it's still not quite a fruity banana. And you mentioned that there are about 20 different chemicals that can contribute to the smell of a banana. Are you studying any of these in particular, or maybe all of them? So I study about two-thirds, or I really focus on about two-thirds of those chemicals. And that that group of chemicals are called branched-chain esters, and that's sort of the, the chemical makeup of them. But what's special about them, and the reason I'm studying them, is that these are the actual compounds, the aroma volatiles, that smell like banana, that give it banana-like essence. The other ones play a more supporting cast to the flavor and give it more fruity notes and whatnot. But these ones that I'm really focused on, which are have branch chains in them, are banana-like, and they're unique to banana. And that's why they're, they're so interesting, is that other fruits, they don't taste like banana. We only have bananas. It's, it's tough to talk about it because it describes itself. So those are the compounds that I'm interested in. One thing that I know about because I grew up in South Florida is that there used to be a different variety of banana before, but it's not the same variety that we have in today's grocery markets, for example. 
How has the banana changed over our history? And has that changed anything about the chemical composition of the aromas that are coming off of it? So in the past, there was the Gros-Michel banana, which was quite related to what we eat now, which is called the Cavendish. However, starting around the 1950s, a fungal pathogen wiped out the monoculture of the Gros-Michel, and it pretty much led to it to become economically extinct. And a lot of that artificial banana flavor is thought to be based after the Gros-Michel, because the replacement, the Cavendish banana, which is also a dessert type that's resistant, is what replaced it and what we now eat today. The Cavendish supposedly tastes differently, and that's some of the work that I'm looking to do is to see the differences between that past banana and our modern one. However, everything's not well with the Cavendish in that it's currently threatened by the same pathogen, but a new version of it. And that pathogen has spread to all the major continents of banana production. And right now, there's no dessert, sweet, fruity banana that's resistant to replace it. And so some of my work is to understand how does the Cavendish smell how it does, and perhaps how can we confer that into a resistant banana variety. It's really difficult to quantify taste, smell, sight, and all the other senses. So whenever you're doing your experiments, how are you able to isolate these esters and know that they are specifically contributing to certain factors of the smell of the banana? In my research, I have not been as concerned with what chemicals confer what notes or flavors. So a lot of those compounds have been identified. And my work has been more interested in how are those chemicals actually made and what's the background to their production. To measure the aroma of a banana fruit, one method that we use is we take a banana and we put it into a jar that's made out of solid Teflon. So it doesn't absorb any of the aromas. It's totally nonstick. It's quite an interesting substance. We let that banana incubate and it gives off gases and we're able to sample that headspace, so the volatiles that's given off. And then we can insert that sample into a machine that separates them and then identifies the different chemicals. And from there, we're able to quantify what aroma a banana is actually producing. I'm so used to hearing about Teflon tape that I never realized that you can make a jar made out of solid Teflon. So that's pretty interesting. You talked about how the esters contribute to the aromas, but how are these esters being produced to create the aromas in the first place? The aroma compounds in banana are derived from the amino acids, so very common building block chemicals that are in all cells. They're derived from valine and leucine, from the same metabolic routes. And as bananas ripen and they make more aroma, we see that these precursors, so valine and leucine, also accumulate. But one of the paradoxes that we've seen in banana is that when valine and leucine are made normally, and it's made in every plant produces it, and bacteria make it, and we need it to survive. When plants produce valine and leucine, they have checks in place to prevent overaccumulation, because otherwise it would be poisonous. Bananas somehow overcome that regulation, overcome that check, and produce copious amounts of valine and leucine, and thus are able to produce copious amounts of their aroma volatiles. For those of you who don't know, some of the amino acids out there you can only get from eating them in your foods. So valine and leucine, like Philip was saying, are two essential amino acids that you can only get from your diet. 
Philip, you had mentioned that these amino acids can later be turned into these esters, which are producing the aromas for the bananas. Are you specifically looking at this pathway on how it's being converted into esters, or are you more interested in the end product? My work has been principally around how the amino acids and those precursors are produced. How you actually get from the amino acid to the ester is still not well understood. And I have ideas about that. My lab has ideas. But it's still another section of unknowns. And in my work, in trying to focus on a specific area, it's specifically that amino acid metabolism. And once you're able to produce that pool of precursors, it is then converted into esters. And how that's done, I'm not certain of, but there's ideas. As a nuclear physicist, something I think about pretty often are isotopes. And in these esters and amino acids, there's a lot of carbon. Does the role of carbon-13 tracing allow you to determine how the amino acids are being converted into the esters? Yes, using C13 labeling, carbon-13 labeling has been very helpful. I have not done it, but in the past, that's been very important to identify what compounds are turning into what. And so in the past, researchers had fed slices of banana. I say fed, but they're pretty much just dipping the banana into solutions that have carbon-13, leucine or valine, and then seeing where those carbon-13s end up. And they found that, yes, those do eventually end up into the esters. And a a nuance I'd like to place onto this is that while one of the precursors are the amino acids, something to appreciate in bananas is that even while they're ripening and they're turning brown and mushy and, and starting to go bad, but in that ripening process, it's still very active. And the fruit may be sacrificial, but it's not necessarily rotting. And so pathways and different enzymatic routes and chemicals are being synthesized actively in banana fruit. And so as those pathways kick on, we do get amino acids, and they are a precursor. But an important nuance of this system is that the whole system is being turned on in banana fruit just to produce these esters. It's not just scraping up spare valine and leucine it can find, but it's, it's very actively producing all these compounds to make an ultimate goal, which is this aroma that we desire. There's a specific word that you said that really caught my attention. Is there maybe more C13 or carbon-13 or these amino acids that are producing these esters whenever it's earlier in its ripening process or later? In addition to that question... Are all your experiments at a specific time point for the bananas, like in their life cycle? Are you looking at various parts of the life cycle for the banana? In my research, I try to be as thorough as possible in tracing bananas throughout their entire ripening profile. So I start with mature green bananas. I then treat them with a ripening gas. So that could be ethylene or other things like propylene or acetylene. And then I track them throughout ripening. And bananas ripen quickly. So every day I take samples or I analyze the, the fruit and I see how they're progressing all the way through as they're turning yellow to when they have brown spots. And what we see as they ripen and progress is most of the amino acids stay stable in baseline. However, valine and leucine specifically are increasing, which is a great key in showing this change in metabolism in this ripening process for the aroma compounds. 
I mean, I don't care really what people say. I'll eat a banana with dark spots on it. I think they taste just fine. But on a more serious note, we've had episodes before that have looked at apples and blueberries from very specific orchards. Up here in Michigan, bananas don't really grow, unless maybe you have them in a greenhouse. But anyways, where are you getting your supply of bananas from? Yeah, I'd say that's one of the most common questions I get in that we don't really grow bananas in Michigan. I think it'd be tough even to have it produce fruit in a greenhouse here. But thankfully, bananas are a tropical, subtropical crop, and so they're available all year long. So I actually acquire bananas from Meyer, and I get them from Meyer, and they, they come up here from Mexico or, or Guatemala or Costa Rica, and that's a very steady supply for the common Cavendish. Some of my work has also required more unique bananas that you can't normally find or that aren't grown in very many places. And so to collect those, I will either contact growers in Southern Florida or there's a collection in Puerto Rico that has sent me fruit. Now, I'd really like to know more about these exotic bananas. So I would assume that something like a plantain or maybe those little mini bananas that you see bunched together could be one of those that you are studying can you give us examples about these exotic bananas that you're studying and what differences you've seen with the Cavendish banana? Sure. I Something that American consumers lack is a diversity in bananas. And there's so much diversity, and yet none of that's available to us. So superficially, there's red bananas, there's blue bananas, there's ones that turn green, I'm sure. There's also all sorts of different shapes Taste-wise, so you mentioned plantains, which is more of a culinary definition. Plantains are cooking bananas, and they don't have that same conversion of starch to sugars. So they stay more potato-like instead of turning into a sweet fruit. There's also bananas that smell like apple, and that's those really throw you off when you smell them. There are bananas that lack some of the more general fruity notes and instead have more artificial smells to them. There are some bananas that are used for brewing beer. So there's a huge diversity. And, and what we know as American consumers is really just one dessert type. And sometimes the stores carry plantains. When in reality, there's so many different varieties out there. I'd say there's more diversity than what we see in apples. Earlier in the interview, we talked about what chemicals are responsible for creating the esters that produce the aromas from bananas, but not so much how the aromas are actually created. Is there a mechanism that is well understood by researchers to explain this aroma creation? So in banana fruit, it's not known how bananas are able to synthesize these unique esters. We know they're derived from valine and leucine, but we don't know what actual mechanism is allowing for that, and that's the focus of my research. I mentioned earlier that valine and leucine prevent their own production or accumulation, and that's because they're able to interact with those enzymes and tell them to stop and to say, no more, don't make any more of this. And my work suggests that alternative splicing of those enzymes is allowing for bananas to produce their aromas. And for those out there in our audience who don't know alternative splicing, could you please give them an example or help them picture what that is? Totally. So alternative splicing is an interesting mechanism that occurs in most living things. 
And when we think about how the most basic functions of biology work is we have DNA and that eventually gets expressed and we have genes and those turn into proteins and those are products. And those are the enzymes I'm talking about. You can think about the DNA as a recipe. And when you take that recipe, you make a copy of it, sort of like a working copy. And that from that working copy, you follow the recipe and you produce a product. So let's say you're making a cake. Alternative splicing is this idea that you have this working copy of your recipe, of your gene, and now you're going to change it a little bit. And you might say, okay, I'm making a cake, but I actually want to make it a chocolate cake so I could add something in. Or you could say, you know, I don't want to frost this cake for whatever reason. And you might take that out. And so this gene doesn't just translate into one product. It can actually translate into many different products. And that gives flexibility and allow organisms to be dynamic in how they express their genes. In humans and animals, it's been known for a long time to be very important. In plants, it's sort of been ignored. In banana, it seems like that those enzymes, which are regulating and otherwise would inhibit production of aroma compounds, it seems like those are being alternatively spliced. And it seems like the part of them that would be regulating the production of esters and valine and leucine, that part of them, that regulatory region, is being compromised and is being removed. And this phenomenon seems to be unique to banana. And it seems that this unique function is really how bananas are able to produce their aromas. Well, this is the first I've ever even heard of alternative splicing. So thanks for breaking that down for us and our audience. When it comes to the aroma that the banana is producing, I'm curious about what component of the banana you're studying that's producing this aroma. Are you studying, for example, the leaves of the banana, the peel of the banana, or the inside of the banana? For a while, it wasn't known what is actually producing the smell of banana. And some of my first work here, I helped on a project that helped to identify that the pulp, so the inside, the, the meat of the banana, is the main site of aroma biosynthesis. The peel makes a little bit, and it may have some role in regulating in that it may block some of the aroma chemicals, it could break it down, but principally, most of the aroma is coming from the pulp. Well, I really learned a lot about bananas from this episode. I honestly never thought about what makes a banana smell the way that it does. So thanks so much for teaching me today about this really cool topic. And good luck on the rest of your research. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.